The Right for Energy Justice, Interview with Raphael Heffron, Episode 33. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Raphael Heffron, Professor for Global Energy Law and Sustainability at the Center for Energy, Petroleum, and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee. He is well known for his publications on energy justice. In October, Paul Grave Macmillan will be publishing his book, The Challenge for Energy Justice, Correcting Human Rights Abuses. I didn't know this when asking him onto the podcast, but we are treated to a sneak peek into how he is outlining the connection between respect and fulfillment of human rights and the energy transition. Our discussion first addresses the shift and importance of energy law. Raphael describes how oil and gas law shifted from focusing on building projects to now considering decommissioning of assets. Economic development is viewed both as delivering on societal goals, but not through fossil fuels. In fact, Raphael draws on research to make the point that fossil fuels increase inequality in society and do not deliver a fair and just transition. We have an in-depth discussion on the normative framings of law and energy justice being rooted in the historical evolution of fossil fuels, from safety issues to child welfare, all still relevant today. For those listeners not knowledgeable in the area of energy law or justice, I suggest to stick with us through this discussion, as we do break down what normativism is and how it works in the legal system. The normative stance is connected to universal human rights being respected regardless of where an individual lives. Raphael is truly a leading thinker on the topic of energy law and justice. He provides us with an in-depth and well-thought-out framing of energy justice. A just energy transition is now in the policy lexicon, but as Raphael describes, there is a historical grounding of energy justice in legal framings, which enable and require governments to respect human rights. Governments need to assert their responsibility to deliver energy technologies that are clean and provide access to all citizens. And just a note, sound quality is always important to me in producing this podcast. In this interview, you can hear the Scottish bird singing behind Raphael. So during the episode, let's all imagine we are sitting with Raphael on a terrace overlooking the beautiful Scottish glens. I know my grandfather, who could pull out his mother's Scottish accent when the time was right, would appreciate. Finally, a kind reminder. We do the My Energy 2050 podcast to share knowledge and highlight those contributing to a clean and just energy transition. Our guests share their knowledge on how to implement this transition. So please help us spread the word by sharing episodes with the people in your network. We've had some amazing guests, and I'm very excited about our future guest lineup. My point being, we're all committed to building an effective energy transition, and you can help us by sharing. And now, for this week's episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Today, I'm welcoming onto the My Energy 2050 podcast, Raphael Heffron, Professor for Global Energy Law and Sustainability at the Center for Energy, Petroleum, and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee. Raphael, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you, and delighted to be here. 
Great. Thanks. Thanks, Raphael. You have an extensive legal background and you've been teaching energy law for, for a f- quite a few years. I don't want to say you're, I think you're my age, so I don't want to make you sound older than what you are. But, but can you describe or explain how did you become involved in energy law? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, uh, first of all, I would say that I, I know I may I know I may appear as a senior citizen of the of the energy scene, but uh, I am many many years younger than you, Michael. That's right, many years younger. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, but let's say uh, you know how how I became interested in energy law. Initially, was uh, my my focus was very much on planning and environmental law in terms of looking at infrastructure development and really i suppose i started taking case studies from the energy sector because they presented the idea of big projects where there was planning and environmental and then also uh, a lot of commercial law aspects right you know around finance companies and really that's how i got into energy law because the commercial law planning and environmental law were my spe- specializations as i as i went forward to practice and um over the years then i obviously began uh the major focus on on big energy projects so i look at a variety from all across the energy sector so Hence, I teach uh, energy law, and I believe that that's the the study of the law around energy. And I'm not in in the past. Let's say people who taught in energy they described themselves more as a oil and gas lawyer, a, a mining lawyer, um, and you have some people today who describe themselves as a, a renewable energy law. Uh, a new renewable energy law lawyer, but I, I believe you have to talk about all the energy sources because you have to be able to discern between, for example, the subsidies offered to coal or oil or gas as much as you talk about subsidies given to renewable or other low carbon energy sources such as nuclear or perhaps hydro. And it's only when you can talk about across energy purposes that you understand the variety that exists within energy law. And you you can then talk a bit more freely about issues such as competition, etc. Uh-huh. I, I was wondering if you, um, you mentioned commercial law and that was part of the beginning there. Uh, can you explain what is involved in this is this is the great job about doing this podcast. I get to ask these questions where I think I know what it means, but I'm not quite sure I know what it means. So, could you explain how what commercial law is, and then the relation to how how did you delve into energy? I would say to energy projects. Well, let's let's say to answer both those questions at sort of at the same time is when you're thinking about commercial law the two major aspects you're thinking about are time and money. And that's what the commercial lawyer is asking. How long is it going to 
take for, let's say, for example, to get approval for this project? How long will it take to get this project operational? And, and what they should be asking is, what is the decommissioning required for this project? But as, as I'm sure you know, Michael, from your own research, decommissioning did unfortunately not feature in many project, you know, initial assumptions or proposals about a project. And um, in many cases, um, all over your home country in, in, in the USA, unfortunately, but all, all, all over many other countries in Europe and the world, decommissioning was, was an afterthought. But um, that's, in essence, what you're thinking is that time and money, and that's when you think as the commercial law aspect you're dealing with, um, okay, where is this money, this project finance going to come from? How long am I going to need this money for? Is it a two-year planning phase, a four-year construction phase, you know, that's six years already, um, what law needs to be changed, what dealings do you need to have with the energy regulator, how long will they take, um, and you, you know, you have some of the international metrics such as the World Bank cost of doing business, you know, you know, things like that you'd be thinking of in terms of getting regulatory approval for your project. So it combines a myriad of issues there, you know, there are extensive number of issues, but I, I would say if, if you had the thought process of the project life cycle from thinking about the, you know, from planning the project to construction, to operation, those three phases of the project life cycle, decommissioning is, is coming in there now as, you know, in many countries you have to do, you have to consider decommissioning automatically at the planning phase so we can talk about those four phases already and then you're thinking about the time and money aspects across those four phases so you know in a simplistic way i don't i don't want to get into um you know giving giving a illegal lecture to your readers mm -hmm. they, they can come to they can come to uh to the university of dundee for that but uh in, in a nutshell, think of those four stages of the life cycle and time and money across those four stages for a variety of aspects. And, and that sort of makes up uh, commercial law. And, and remember the essence of the essence of the law of law is to help reduce risk. So you're thinking about all the time you're thinking we want to reduce the risk and we want to sign contracts with different stakeholders so that the overall risk profile of the project is reduced. And if you can reduce that risk enough, it's more likely that you're going to get the, the green light to go ahead with your project from multiple stakeholders. Okay. So that's the objective. And, uh, as you know, uh, uh, with being an energy law has changed dramatically over the past few years few years and for example University of Dundee it, it says it in the name petroleum and mineral law it, it has its history with the oil and gas sector and and mining as well how how has the and the whole point as you just mentioned is to reduce risk uh, how has this risk, risk reduction 
been translated into law for new new technologies like solar and wind projects? Well, in, in essence, um, over time, what has been shown is that, that the risk profile has definitely gone down in low carbon energy projects. And perhaps the bigger question is, when we think of the change, as, as you say, in terms of energy law, we do have the energy transition. Increasingly, we have everyone talking about a just transition or a just energy transition. And, the, you know, the is that transition happening fast enough? And you would say in terms of the, the climate, accepted climate emergency, it's not. So therefore, has the risk reduced on low carbon energy projects fast enough? Not, you know, it has not yet. And that's why I say that there needs to be more uh, in-depth research into looking at the various aspects of developing a project, because unfortunately, in many places in the world, there are still too many appearances of risk reduction for fossil fuel based projects. And there is some perception still there that low carbon energy projects come with a lot of risk, even though the technology has decreased in cost significantly. And, you know, there are many associated benefits, you know, particularly maybe even, you know, to mention the health related benefits mm -hmm. as a result of CO2 emission reduction. Um, you know, these aren't being conveyed enough in, in a, in a clean, you know, in a clean and direct way. Um, so, energy law has changed um but in a way we 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 need to see far more progressive change and our our center has still has the word uh, petroleum in it um we we know that other companies like one of the biggest energy companies statoil had changed its name to equinor um, I believe they spent 50 million plus uh, euros on branding that new name, which is great money for a market for a marketing company or their marketing team. But um, you know, we we haven't yet changed our name at the University of Dundee. But um, you know, I, I'm not the director, but. Uh, <laughs> It speaks to your history and your legacy. I, I exactly. Well, well, remember in, in education and also remember a crucial aspect of education is you, you, you can ask is in today's world, when we talk, it's, it's not that petroleum is going to go away. We, we do need to educate people on how to manage petroleum and how you know how to manage that transition of petroleum yeah and you still need to teach on it then exactly so and and we shouldn't be uh we should be having less of a focus on teaching about petroleum development we should be focusing more on well if you're to learn about petroleum development you also have to be learning about petroleum decommissioning and also about 
maybe other aspects, you know, environment, more environmental issues of petroleum development. Um, and, you know, they are two cre crucial aspects. And if you do check some textbooks um, from 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, uh, if you did a mini historical analysis, you would find that many of the textbooks lack information about decommissioning, environmental issues, subsidies offered. Um, and you'd be, you know, you'd be wondering, um, can you really blame the student of 30 years ago when that didn't feature as part of the education? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now the petroleum... And I'm not using it, and I'm not assuming it's using in a bad way. The word petroleum, but the the focus and the teaching has also shifted too over time about decommissioning. But as you said, petroleum is, and all the projections definitely show that uh, petroleum is going to be with us uh, beyond 2050 even. And so these things need to be taught how to do the legal framework around it. Well, well, it's it's about managing a an energy resource in transition because mm -hmm. uh, you know we we have to look at where some of these models about energy come in and i mean you 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 only keep some of the energy sources in after 2050 based on based on a slower energy transition one that is uh where you continue to offer a variety of subsidies uh whether they be uh, you don't have to pay the full costs of the CO2 you emit. You don't have to pay the full costs of methane you emit, you emit in the production process. So if you're going to keep getting all these uh, environmental externality subsidies that you don't have to pay for, of course you may continue to produce uh, some, some energy sources beyond 2050. But, um, you know, it doesn't take into account if you have what is referred to as a Minsky moment where suddenly the, the technology source becomes so cheap it automatically replaces the other energy sources and you don't use them. And let, let's say we've seen this in other areas of our lives, um, you know, just to maybe talk about the, the relationship, you know, I, I remember meeting you as a, uh, I think uh, when you were you were a PhD student and and you you still had a, a Nokia phone, um, <laughs> and those Nokia phones were great. I mean they were very simplistic, um, but uh, the battery life lasted for five or six days or a week, um, as long as you didn't play the the one game that was on it. But um, <laughs> yes. We uh, keep calling we, each other, figure out where we are. That's right in yeah. Brussels. I think that's where it was. Yeah, yeah. But would would you, you know, we're talking in a short space of time, ten or fifteen years. People are using no. Everyone is using some type of smartphone, and you would never go back and use the other phone. Um, and many of the Nokia's competitors back then are out of business in terms of phones. So if you are a energy company primarily invested in energy sources that people want you to transition out of, you know, 
this isn't just a policy movement around energy transition. This is a technology race, in my opinion. And governments can make the race a lot faster if they do change policy and regulation faster. But um, you, you see certain, let's call it inklings of technological development where uh, things could happen faster and faster. And, you know, we, we see artificial intelligence being linked up with energy storage, being linked up with possibly mobile, personal mobile renewable energy technology. So when the day comes that uh, you are driving around Europe with your own solar panels stuck on your car, on the top of your car that you can then put on the window of your stick on the window of your house when you arrive at home, you know, that's going to be uh, transformative. Um, are you going to need, you're no longer going to need any petroleum for your car. You won't need big electricity companies providing so much electricity for, for you. You may need some base low power, but, uh, you know, if you have energy storage, the base load can be captured far more cheaply from multiple low carbon energy options. So, um, you know, will we see that Minsky moment? We, we have seen it in computers, mobile phones. We are seeing it maybe in cars at the moment with Tesla being worth more than I think the five or the next big five or 10 car companies, um, you know, change hopefully is happening mm -hmm. and Raphael I, I, maybe I get to the teaching part or my teaching question uh, first and, and this is um, uh, the students that I teach that usually go on and work in an energy company or an NGO dealing with energy they um, they don't get a lot of training about the energy sector and and this is I think one of the inter one reason I'm so interested in energy law is that you're focused or the things that you teach are focused on energy law themselves. So you have the legal framework, but how much do the students need, need to know about the technology itself? So you just spoke about the technology and how it can develop and where it's going. Uh, what is this balance between knowing the legal, legal frameworks, uh, everything that goes into producing a contract in the case of commercial law, uh, and certainly in the public law as well. And how much is, uh, how important is to be familiar with the technologies themselves? Um, I, I think it's very important that at the university here, we try and ensure that students are taught in an interdisciplinary way. And, um, you know, teaching them about how the technology works is is one aspect because uh, if they learn what the law is, how how it varies slightly for different energy sources, they need to understand a bit about the technology. It's, I'm not saying they need to become experts, but um, these days there are books on that explain in brief how the technology works. There are videos we can direct them towards, short videos on YouTube. There are films they can watch. 
Um, and there are also, we also here do uh, trips out to different energy sources so they can see firsthand for themselves, you know, a oil or gas rig, a nuclear power plant, a wind farm, etc. Yeah, uh, it takes, it gives you just a completely different perspective when you see it up close and how it works. Ex exactly. And, you know, uh particularly i think people are very amazed when they when they see the the scale of a piece of nuclear energy infrastructure um and i i think it's a eye-opening moment for many students uh seeing the variety in person and you know we we do that here and hopefully with things getting slightly better this is something that we can have happen again after, after COVID. Yes. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I do always encourage my students. I, I give them a, I give, I give them a few options as a starting point, but I do encourage them to seek out some of those films that are based around energy sources. Um, you know, there was the Deepwater Horizon, which was on that huge BP oil spill in your home country that, you know, which was a, a financial and environmental scandal, I, I, I think. And uh, they provide some historical context and also... I, I think also you increasingly have a lot of educational videos around how the technology works. Some are more complex, maybe they're for engineers, but you know, there's a lot there for the, for the, uh, the law student. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I know. I just finished a, a course this past weekend and usually we take a trip to a ethanol uh, facility and we had to skip that this year and it didn't, <laughs> While I could teach about biofuels and renewable energy and what goes into it, and some people would argue against biofuels, but but still, it it um, it, it makes such an impact to see the the corn being brought in from the field, what they do with it, and the process, and how much gas they consume, and the drying process, and feed that is produced, and how complex these facilities are. So I can imagine if you're teaching it from the energy law perspective, all those contracts that have to be in place, or even the build itself, how complex that can be. And when they see that infrastructure, then I think the scale of it and the amount of work that goes into it really is brought home. Exactly. And, and I think, um, you know, it gives a it gives a, a real world experience of, you know, you, you of what you're what you're studying in at that moment that you actually see, you know, this is this is what what it looks like. And uh, this is the environmental context, which, you know, of, of where it is in your country. And, uh, you know, normally if, if you go out to a particular energy site, you also see the, uh, you know, the environment around there, the, the, the town or the city. And I, I think that's, you know, that's equally important. Yeah. Right. Uh, the bigger economic implications yeah. of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it'll be, it'll be great to, 
to get out there again and uh, ensure students uh, see that. But, I, you know, I would say as much as we say that we do live in privileged times where we have resources like YouTube and it's easier to watch films online and uh, that's not something that was so prevalent, let's let's say even 10, 15 years ago. No, and, and let me just say that there's also a podcast to listen to about this great topic <laughs> exactly you know one of the the new wave of podcasts trying to shape the, the debate for 2050 so not to be ignored no no i would say probably the most essential resource for anyone interested in energy transitions so uh with that actually that's a that's a perfect uh segue to the topic which we really need to talk about and it's energy justice and ensuring i would say uh how we are how technology is coming together with the social side of the energy system and i was just maybe to start off here you've published widely on it uh, and you know, I want to say, can you pick your favorite energy justice publication? But I'll, I'll, I won't pose that as a question. But if you want to comment on it, you can. But I maybe want to ask as a starter is how how has the energy justice? Well, I'll call it framework if I'm not going to offend you on it. But how has the energy justice framework developed over the years? And how do you see it being? How do you see it shaping policy right now? Well, I, I think um, many, many elements came together to bring about this uh, justice movement with, within energy scholarship. And we have to remember that uh, roughly 75% to, you know, depending on what data you, you use, um, but I would say generally what I see is roughly 75 to 80% of greenhouse gas emissions are from the energy sector. So there is a big responsibility of the energy sector to have more fairness, more uh, equitable distribution, more equality, more inclusiveness with, within it. And maybe in some ways it's been surprising it wasn't a feature before. Um, and to me, I think that was in part because of the separation of the identity of the energy sector. People talked about coal separately. They talked about oil and gas separately. They talked about nuclear separately. And there wasn't a lot of joined up thinking and that corresponds with energy policy or essentially corresponds with energy law because you had oil and gas law, you had mining law, you had environmental law, you had, you know, energy finance law. It was all separate. So everything existed in a nearly in a separate way in, in many countries and in, in particular in the, let's say in the big crucial countries uh, who produce a lot of energy and are responsible for you know, a lot of the technology and, and or pollution. But um, so I think society over time began to demand a bit more and uh, researchers recognized this and began to write about it more. Um, 
I still think there's some way to go. I mean, I, I spoke with some energy justice scholars a couple of months ago, and they tried to say that uh, there wasn't a, a normative goal behind energy justice. And I, I said, um, but I mean, by talking about justice, you do have a normative goal to have more justice in society. I mean, why else would you bother talking about justice? That is, you know, if you say you're a justice scholar, you have a normative goal automatically because you're looking for justice. Um, but as you be aware, this is some of the uh, mixed uh, style of uh, word games that people play. Um, so let's say for me, it's easier to talk about uh, energy justice because I think coming from the legal side, you, you understand what justice is and part of the reason you, let's say uh, the majority of lawyers become a lawyer is that initially they started out as wanting just more justice in society for some particular aspect. Obviously some get distracted in their journey as a lawyer and um, it becomes more about, uh, let's say, time and money than, than justice. Um, but such, such is the way of life. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but let's say, uh, uh, you know, I, to me, I, I think people need to realize that normative goal that we're working towards of more justice in the energy sector. And uh, when you're an energy justice scholar, that you're looking for that fairness, that equality, that equity, that uh, inclusiveness. And to me, that's really the way the framework is shaped around guiding what justice means. And, and let's say um, the UN the whole world has a view of, of simply what more justice is. And um, you even have people disputing what justice means in different, you know, countries and everything and saying that, you know, we justice means different things in different religions and, and things like that. But, you know, in the energy sector, the technology works exactly the same way. Uh, you know, we're not getting involved in religious debates or uh, political debates. That's why I don't really agree with uh, some of the energy democracy discussions. Um, we're talking about energy technology. And if someone chooses the wrong energy technology, you know, the coal plant is going to affect people the same way it is in Bulgaria, as it is to Spain, as it is to South Africa, as it is to Colombia, as it is to Australia, you know, we can all have the same goal of more fairness, equity, inclusiveness, uh, equality, when we talk about a coal plant in operation. And uh, I think we we that's what we need to focus on. And, and for me, that's what the framework does focus on. Um, and we need more people to realize that uh, there is a link there between, I, I don't see ju this energy justice movement as just being around social sciences or arts and humanities. 
I see it being very connected to uh, the sciences, even if you include economics as in the sciences. It is, I think, it's a system-wide perspective that we 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 are working with here, and for me, that's that's the way the framework. I I, li- I like that because you place technology. I don't want to say you place technology at the center, but technology is a static entity. And then it's the, the social and yeah, economic and, and more or less the re- reactions or interactions that go around the technology itself that affect how that techno- the impact that technology has. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, well, before we move on, I, I would just agree with your normative framing of energy justice just because I've written a new article uh, saying it's too normative, and also it's in my book as well that it's that it is normative, but also uh, the new articles are called I think something about radical energy justice. So, uh, but but we'll wait for that one to come out. It's almost done with the peer review, but I, I definitely agree with the with the normative framing. But I think that's the strength of it. Could you maybe explain a bit more? And I think because as the energy justice framework gets developed more and more i see it also becoming um, more quantitative or uh, being measured in a sense and and it is being measured can you describe the legal framing and and why is it a normative framing what what is in law that makes it normative because in essence you have to have a there has to be an underlying goal of energy justice because you have to be able to say um, when it finally comes to, you know, where is that policy going and essentially where is that legislation going, there has to be some underlying motivation to say this is the direction we're working towards. So, for example, if you were to finally have a to challenge multiple government decisions the what you would expect is that the the judge in the courtroom or the judge in whatever type of legal system you had you know the, the, you know whichever type of legal system you have you will have some role of a judge or someone who's making a decision and they have to know what's well what is it that society is working for working towards for this energy sector because they have to have the the grounds of how to make that decision and that's why there has to be some normative goal of the energy sector and let's say you can trace what that normative goal has been in the past and initially that normative goal was around safety that that was a major goal in the first commercial scale operations of the energy sector back in the very early 1800s uh, the normative goal became safety focused obviously we were using energy for you know development but the sort of first policy or legislation we didn't really have policy or legislation around development. It 
you know, it just happened and companies went about it. But where the law and policy came in was to protect the safety of operations because too many people were were dying down the coal mines and, and largely children. And if you think about that children aspect, you can think about the children who are working down the mines in many countries today. And this is a measure of the lack of justice from the early 1800s to the modern world we live in today. We, we still have we still haven't quite got in uh, these justice idea, ideas of justice within the energy sector. Society hasn't changed too much about the energy sector. You can say, yes, the safety legislation has moved on, of course, but um, that justice element hasn't happened. And this is why you can think nearly 200 years later, it's finally happening. Um, which is obviously very good, but, you know, why did it take 200 years to happen? Um, but, uh, you know, to me, that's what uh, in, in or I hope in, in sort of answering your question, that's what you're thinking about, that there isn't, there always has been some type of normative goal in energy. Some, you know, we can think back to the creation of, of the European Union where, where you are sitting now and, and I am sitting outside of um, as a result of um, politics in the UK. But um, the EU is founded on two energy treaties. You know, let's, let's not forget that the EU was not founded on other issues. It was founded on two energy treaties. And I think a lot of a lot of students, if you ask them, even even in one of your own areas, politics, I'm sure if you ask them, okay, basic political question, why and how is the EU formed? I guarantee you probably, um, I would challenge you to say that 80% of the class would put, the, I would assure and be nearly positive, they would probably get the wrong answer. Um, and it was founded on two energy treaties. That's how important energy was from an energy security, you know, a societal security perspective, as it were, that um, these EU countries wanted to manage the energy resources to prevent an outbreak of war, but also to assist, you know, potentially in the future economic development between these countries. So um, there's always been different normative goals and I'm, I'm not saying, you know, we, we should remember justice is not, doesn't have to be an exclusive normative goal. It can be one combined with development. And, and I think that's what, you know, when we talk about some countries in the global south, I, I sometimes hear debates of, oh, well, our, our, we should be able to burn all this coal because other countries did. And it's, you know, there is an element that some countries have to be leaders in how does justice work with development as a twin normative goal. And that's probably the responsibility of the Western world to do. That's why you probably need greater technology transfer. 
probably it's probably why you need to lower intellectual property within energy etc so um there's always been normative goals but justice hasn't really featured until you know the last uh essentially really the last decade mm -hmm. and then this development i really liked your comparison with the eu or discussion of the founding of the eu it really brings to the center the importance of the energy system in both our social spheres and interests but also the economic interests which hold the energy sector together and as you mentioned the the energy sector is accounting for what 85 75 to 80 percent of ghg emissions so it, it shows the necessity and the central focus we need to have on the energy system to create right to reduce uh climate well our impact on the climate around climate change and uh, my my question then, <laughs> that was my statement. I have to be careful of just making statements and asking questions. But I was wondering, and then we have the normative framing, the basis uh, around energy justice. But And this ties into, I think, what you've written uh, about human rights. Uh, a recent recent editorial in, in, energy, in the Global Energy Law and Sustainability Journal um, was was about human rights and energy justice. I could could you explain a bit more on the interrelationship between the two? Yeah, so um you know that that's a, a good little article and and there's there's a a book coming out next month. So, um ensure your library buys buys a copy. Oh, wait, what's the title of the book? Uh the book is called The Challenge of the challenge of energy justice, uh, correcting human rights abuses. Oh, perfect. Okay, I didn't know you had a book coming out. Okay, this is this is great that you're on now. Okay. Uh huh. So, the in in a nutshell, the let's say the the idea is um, around thinking about when you do have an, a problem in the energy sector, the way you will, the, the last way in society that you can try and get that changed is through your, your national, your local or national legal system and, and possibly later the international one. But generally, let's say for most people, it'll begin at a local to national level. And what we are seeing is the the link being able to being able to say that you know this is a human rights issue that that um, you are you are able to finally defend yourself from the energy sector by saying you know this has affected let's say my right to clean air my right to clean water the environment possibly education, you know, and, and several other rights that when you, when you are trying to protect yourself in face of a, an existing energy injustice or, or a potential future energy injustice, that the last way you can go, you, the last way you can proceed in society to try and protect yourself from that injustice is to talk about to try and get your human right 
protected in in the in your national court system and that that way let's say that method already exists and in some ways it connects back to your normative uh discussion and 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 let's say what you what you were saying maybe is forthcoming in your your uh, your article um and when we talk about energy justice i mean we we talk about okay you know justice is a broad word and i i, I mentioned you know fairness equality inclusiveness equitable distribution but when we if you extend the discussion on those four four issues even further you know what you are talking about is okay equitable distribution you know that is about just you know distribution of you know the fair distribution you know that is a sort of uh, socio-economic rights um so everything comes back to a right you know inclusiveness does mean education the right to a healthy environment you know the right to to a healthy uh, secure family life etc so you know again how do how does your justice issue actually translate to the individual who exists walking around in society and it translates to the rights that they have in that society you know at that particular time and also into the future you know in the next 5 10 15 20 years you know if you talk about education you don't just receive it for the current year you're receiving it for 5 10 15 years you're going to have a, your family you know for you know hopefully forever um you know so that's the idea of you go from that big energy system perspective and you go to okay what is it really we're talking about with this justice how are we really going to actually see the effect on the ground where as individuals we walk around and it is where your rights are going to be protected and you know you you can be living in any country but you deserve the some of the same rights as anyone else and we have all these rights in a common you know a lot of these rights are all commonly understood through the U united nations you know there's no you don't we don't have to go off inventing new new uh, papers on different ideas etc etc you know blah 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 um you know let's work with what we've got when we think individual you know in all countries there are some basic elements of human rights uh, respected and and uh, you know to go back to one of the ideas that we talked about earlier you know you you mentioned the technology issue and i mentioned my view you know the coal plant that works that technology works the same in all countries so if you decided with your family, Michael, to live in Australia, to live in Colombia, to live in Bulgaria in the next six years, two, two years in each country next to a coal plant, 
we will be talking about your the same rights being affected in each country and that is in essence sort of the link that i'm i'm making and if if you were to seek a solution within each country it would probably be find its way in the same you know legal system that those rights are still protected in the same style of of uh, way you know the legal system may be slightly slightly different but you know your rights would be uh, the same and your rights are being affected in the same way because you know the technology is the same mm -hmm. I, um, mm -hmm. so, I, I just so, want to say i like how you bring in the individual on this and not just when we think about I'll frame it a bit differently, but climate change or just energy transition, we, we often lose sight of the individuals and their role within. And here you're talking about how to protect everyone's rights, regardless of the country that they're involved in. And how, how does that tie into maybe some of the larger debates about, I would say, the developing countries and uh, and their need or their perceived need to have coal-fired power plants or their right to have a fossil to use fossil fuels compared to developed countries which are transitioning and using more renewable energy does this tie into that yeah i mean i mean this is a this is a global issue i mean it it ties in to the big cosmopolitan justice debate about us all being world citizens um you know based on that cosmopolitan philosophy and as as, a, as i often make the joke you know cosmopolitan that cosmopolitan angle of energy justice is sometimes forgotten by a lot of the energy justice community that we you know we are all in this together and what you know what you do in one country affects what you do in another country um, and affects the individual in other countries. So, you know, if, if you want to be part of the debate, I mean, the research is already there. It shows that uh, those who, are, who live in more poverty are being affected more by carbon dioxide emissions and are being affected more by a whole variety of the effects of climate change. So if you ask, if you ask, you know, that I, if you say I want to use more fossil fuels, you have to be remembering, you may also want to be saying to other countries, well, you need to use less um, and you have to be able to give the, the arguments of why this should be the case. And I think those arguments are getting very weak to say that, oh, we, we should be allowed continue fossil fuel development because show me how the fossil fuel is actually cheaper and show me how it's not going to affect the different human rights of the, you know, the humans living within your own country. I mean, it's it's we, we, we can already give you the research on even developed countries that those who, you know, 
the more fossil fuel development you have in developed countries, the more societal inequality you will have, and the more those who are poor will suffer the effects. So, you know, who is the fossil fuel development going to have a bigger impact on? And in some cases, we we need to break down the the component parts of the energy sector. You know, if if you allow energy development in your country, who's paying for the gas pipeline? Is it is it the government that's going to pay for some of the gas pipeline that's going to go from the energy the gas extraction site out to the commercial place where it's sold, generally abroad? Um, you know, is the energy company actually paying for everything? What we have seen in the past is there has been a lot of contributions from national governments. And what, what I would ask is uh, we, we need to consider the, the alternative pathways of economic development. And there are many examples emerging today of successful low carbon energy development in developing countries. There are also increasingly emerging examples of developing countries trying to develop their economies on, you know, a different type of economic structure where they focus on entrepreneurship, you know, other technology development. Um, and we, we maybe need to get to move away from this idea of energy being a, a fail safe as a solution for economic development. And a lot of onus does fall on the developed world to provide m better and more solutions to the developing world. So I know, I know it is a big challenge, but uh, increasingly the economics do not stack up. And if you're to argue even from a socioeconomic standpoint, which will affect your economic uh, development in the future, you know, you are making a short term decision that is going to har harm your medium to longer term economic development. Um, you know, if you have societal inequality, that is going to harm your future economic development and that's the where that link of protecting human rights comes in you know those so you know the socio-economic aspects uh if you take a lot of that out um you will not you know you will not you will not have that economic development in future anyway so i would encourage more projections and scenario analysis to be done to actually really show is is fossil fuel development actually going to be beneficial for the medium to longer term development? And I, you know, honestly, I don't see enough studies uh, done on that done on those scenarios, and I worry that policy making in that context is very short term, and I don't think even from a developed world research perspective we are doing enough in that space and we we did commit to doing a lot under you know under even the paris agreement we the commitment was renewed a hundred billion a year by 
2020, we, we didn't even reach that figure. Um, so we, we haven't done we haven't done our fair share to to help out the thinking on this aspect. But a, a very crucial question you ask, and I think it should definitely be. I hope it's a crucial question in these climate change talks later this year. Mm-hmm. And let me shift you a little bit to uh, restorative justice, because I think what you were just mentioning about maybe the lack of <laughs> lack of fairness and ability to address social the social aspects by developing fossil fuels with restorative justice it's seeking ways to um you can explain it better seeking ways to uh, make up for past wrongs and i have noticed you've published quite a lot on restorative justice i was just then my question for you then is how can restorative justice serve as a as a both a tool maybe to make up for past wrongs but also as a guidance to prevent future wrongs well i I think the the way restorative justice can work is it really teaches us about uh in the enforcement aspect of policy that if you know restorative justice is part of your policy and legislative framework you know that there's going to be an element of enforcement of how you resolve the impact of your energy project you know and in essence the damaging impact of your energy project and in all other parts of society in many countries all over the world to you know two different extents of course but uh, you know, if something happens, you where you are damaged personally, we have some restorative justice. You know, if you get hit by a car, we try and hold the, the person in the car, driving the car, accountable. And, uh, you know, we can think about all the other things in society, the scenarios that you in your daily life might find yourself in, you know. And we think in the same way, if you if you apply those same aspects that you would be, you, you could walk, walking out the door of your house today, you could end up being a victim of 40 or 50 issues if you had some element of unluckiness on your side. And think if you think about that that potential as you walk outside the door of your home today and you think, if all these 40 or 50 scenarios happened in my life today, how many of them do I get? Uh, I'm, I'm a victim in these 40 or 50 scenarios. How many of them are protected where I have some uh, protection here that my myself as a victim i'm i'm restored a bit to my original position in so far as i i can be and that, and you would find that in your daily life a lot of that is protected and in many countries the the same idea holds a lot of that should be protected in some cases you know it can be harder to get it done than others but you know the laws and policies are in place and that's what we want to see in the energy sector. We want to see 
that if you're dealing or you know you're affected there's an injustice that you've suffered by the energy sector or an energy activity that you should be restored to the original position and it also enforces the company to think okay this has happened a thousand times finally we should use a better technology so let's let's even go further in terms of this uh, this thinking if you gave a hundred people in the in the town you know the the locality where you live and you said um you know we're going to follow this vaccine that someone recommended let's say uh i think some president from i can't remember which country maybe maybe you can tell me he he suggested a couple of bizarre solutions for dealing with uh covid but you know imagine if you had an you you suggested an old world technology for dealing with covid um and it didn't work obviously it didn't work and out of that hundred people who were given that vaccine uh you knew it was an old world solution that they were being given um though you know let's say 40 of those people became very very ill they had to miss six months of work you know they would have a right to be compensated because meanwhile everyone else was getting the the you know uh astrazeneca you know etc etc um you'd be saying of course these people who were given the old the old suspect one from 10 years ago of course they should be compensated and you know there's a reason we don't take the second best medicine from 20 30 40 years ago we we all like the we want the up-to-date one we believe it works better the technology is better so my question is when we think of restorative justice i mean we we can't pretend in today's world to continue to as it were stick our heads in the sand you know as i said to you you know we knew normatively we knew over 200 years ago that coal was causing problems with children's health from not just the safety practices from working down the coal mine but also the pollution and by and large we still haven't solved those problems over 200 years ago sorry 200 years later so should we not have should we not 200 years later be restoring any victim of coal to their original position because i mean to be fair we we you know we have to say we we know this is uh not technology that is not good enough um you know the united nations secretary general at the end of 2020 came out and said all countries should declare a climate emergency so he is the UN leader, you know, who is representing all the nations as part of the, the UN. So, 
um, I think there is global acceptance where we're having this old world technology. And I think uh, just as we do in another sector, um, we compensate you if there was a, a problem, if we if you got if you got purposely sold a old world vaccine for a new a new world, you know, a new world problem, as it were. Uh, I don't see we, why we wouldn't follow the same principle and compensate you today. So, in essence, that's the thought process behind restorative justice. And it is already in law in certain aspects. So just to bring it right up to speed, we see, we see an aspect of that in Australia, even this year, where uh, one company tried to avoid its... Um, obligation of cleaning up an oil well in Australia and to avoid it they went bankrupt but uh, the the I think it was the you know the state government or the national federal government said okay well we're, we're just going to charge all the other remaining uh, companies in the oil sector we're going to charge you all a fee um, I don't know how they worked it out proportionally, but they said we're going to charge you all a fee for cleaning that up. So in essence, they're telling the industry, we're not going to let you away with going bankrupt again. Uh, you know, and, and you kind of have to, the oil companies then kind of have to watch each other and say, okay, you're not going to get, you know, if you're selling that asset, you're not going to get away with it. Um, you know, we're going to be watching because we don't want to be paying out some money to clean up your operation. So, you know, automatically you see that's restorative justice in action. That's encouraging people even to think twice. Well, is is oil that profit oil e extraction that profitable when I will have to pay for the cleanup? That has huge ramifications. Exactly. I mean, it, in a sense, it's a collective punishment, but also for investors, right? It goes actually back to the discussion we had at the very beginning: is how much has energy law changed? And in these sense, you and your focus, right, is on the risks and around maybe even decommissioning, but how to deal with this change over time. Exactly. So, uh, there you go. Perfect. Raphael, okay, I just want to maybe uh, begin to wrap this up. I really like those examples, and it really demonstrates, yeah, with restorative justice, the fact that we can't just assume that the practices and the technologies which are being used today, which are essentially subpar anyways, uh, are or will be acceptable in the future or even won't have financial ramifications for the companies themselves. And I, and I like that because it encourages them to take action now, whether it's themselves or uh, regulators or government, to ensure best practices are used. And maybe, maybe uh, the methane emissions in the United States kind of demonstrate that, where the industry recognizes they actually have to, around gas, limit methane emissions regardless of the government regulations. W would that be an example of this? Uh, very, very much so. And I mean, uh, you know, I, I think, I think there are. 10 or 50 papers waiting to be written around methane emissions. It is a underdeveloped topic. 
and you know i you know i think you've you've uh, as it were you've you've hit the nail on the head okay well why don't me and you write it we'll have to do a road trip across america and do do research <laughs> i think that's better okay uh rafael i just want to end with the last question of what type of energy system would you like to see in 2050 how does that fit into your frame well, well, you know, very much I, I see, uh, for me, an energy system that fits in with a just, that is all about a just transition to a low carbon economy. And I think it's that low carbon economy. It's about not just what's happening within the energy sector, but it's about how those energy uses happens or is used across the whole of society. And, um, you know, it has to have all those different elements of justice as a cornerstone of, you know, planning of operation activities, you know, those core elements for me, which are distributive procedural recognition, restorative cosmopolitan, they should all be the cornerstone of, of what justice means uh, by 2050. That's how that what should guide policy making decision at that time and i'm you know i would be hoping that we could have a lot of technological development I, I really hope this next 10 years until 2030 we see legislative and policy development that incentivizes technological development to such a degree that we see what these this so-called we see Minsky moments in all parts of the energy sector that change fundamentally in a short space of time the way the well the technology itself and the way the ways we use technology within the energy sector that all contribute to a hopefully low carbon a just transition to low carbon economy and i use that word just transition to low carbon economy because that is to reflect the different economic pathways of different countries so i hope that that transition is just and fair for the whole world uh, and not just thinking you know about select few but that's the aim for 2050 uh, that i have Great. Raphael, thank you very much. I think it's a, both an inspirational vision, but I, I think with your research and with others' research on energy justice, uh, it becomes more of a reality. We can just look at the policy sector and how this, the ideas around energy justice along with just transition uh, are actually being taken up and implemented in, in policy framings. So, Raphael, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you, and was delighted to be on and always delighted to be welcome back if there are any special topics in the future that need some debating but uh, thank you for the opportunity it was enjoyable to see you again and all the best with the continued efforts to work towards a fairer society towards uh, energy 2050 perfect Raphael. thank you very much thank you for joining us for this episode we produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. 
You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.